Hi, I'm Megan Z, and welcome to Clinic Ally, the show where we talk about neurodivergence, counseling, and clinician perspectives. Our focus is how to support our loved ones and ourselves. Let's learn how to work together and be Clinic Allies. Hello, and welcome to the next episode of the Silver Linings Podcast Clinic Ally. This is Holly Sharp here with my co-host, Megan Z. And we are very excited today to talk about trauma. For our guests, we have Emily Whaley, who is a licensed professional counselor. And then also returning with us this week is Miriam Gardner. Miriam, what is your credential again, please? Associate License Counselor. Fantastic. So we got two ladies that know a buttload about what we're going to talk about today. (laughs) And so without further ado, Megan, would you like to get us started with the convo? Of course. Yeah, I'd be more than willing. Um, So today we kind of wanted to cover, you know, what really is trauma and how does something that occurs in childhood affect you as an adult? Um, I'm sure you guys could probably do a whole episode just talking about that question alone, but we'll try to cover some of those topics here. And I guess the first question is, what is considered trauma? Okay. Lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, In intake with, I see primarily adolescents and children, and I do specialize in trauma. Um, particularly childhood trauma, I like to say we've got big T trauma and we've got little Mm -hmm. T trauma. Little T trauma, everybody goes through. A car accident, a move, um, the death of a pet, all of those things are, while not earth-shatteringly traumatic, they do affect the way we think, the way we feel, the way we view the world. And so that's why we considered little T trauma because that is usually processed fairly quickly, even though we may have issues that happen later on with um, whatever the traumatic event was. Big T trauma would be, and Miriam, you may um, feel free to add to my list. Big T would be like going through physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, viewing any of that, like domestic violence or like violence in your neighborhood, Um, very traumatic medical issues or long-term neglect. Lots of those, lots of those things would be considered big T trauma. Um, Also the death of a caregiver, you know, major car accidents, things like that. Um, What do you, what would you add to that? So I have a really broad definition of trauma because I have a lot of people come into session and and they're like, you know, I've experienced these things. Is it trauma? Is it not trauma? And I think it's really hard for me to say, yeah, that is trauma or it's not. Mm -hmm. Of course we have like a very objective definition of what trauma is, but I I prefer to say like trauma can be anything that affects your functioning Mm -hmm. and it can, it's not really about what you go through. It's more about how your body takes in that information and does something with it. Um, Absolutely. And I I try and frame that by like saying, you know, we could be in a car accident together and you could walk away totally fine. I could walk away struggling to get in a car for the next couple months, having driving aversion, being on edge. And so we go through the same experience, but our bodies and our minds react in totally different ways. So kind of having the person decide for themselves, was this a a little T trauma? Was it a big T trauma? Mm -hmm. That can be a really empowering process to go through too. So maybe when you have a client and they come to you and say, is this trauma? Maybe the question 
the better question to ask is, was I traumatized? Mm -hmm. And then how, what, to what extent would yeah. be the better way then to identify, is this a little T or big T, which I love categorizing them in that way. Yeah. And I think it's interesting what is considered little T versus big T, and it really does depend on childhood experiences. If you have not had a childhood that um, was fraught with the unknown, with neglect, with abuse, then a car accident can be incredibly traumatic. The death of a pet can be incredibly traumatic, and your body responds to that because it doesn't, it's not normal, you know, and our, and our system and recognizes what is normal. Mm -hmm. um, so if it's normal for everything to be haywire and you don't know where your next meal is coming from and you don't know if dad's going to beat you today, then a car accident's like another bump in the road. So what about, like, does that get stacked or compounded? So let's say you have a generally traumatic childhood. Maybe you experienced neglect or emotional abuse. And then as you get older, maybe you experience something that we would categorize as a big T trauma, like a school shooting. But then you lost a pet on top of that. Would that all, could that all kind of stack together and compact? And because I know we've all heard of those cases where somebody just snaps or goes off the edge or has some kind of breakdown over what seems a very benign trigger in isolation. Mm -hmm. But then when we dig deeper into that person's history, we see, oh, their childhood was really messed up. Or, oh my goodness, they experienced not one big major climactic event, but all of these little things, and then it just, is that how it works? Or is that a subjective question to even ask? Well, more subjective, I would say, because it certainly can stack and compact. It definitely can. I think we've all probably experienced those days, you know, where you just had a horrible day yes. and then you hook your belt loop on wrong. the doorknob and you're stuck and then that just makes you so mad that you explode. The day's over. You know, and there's no coming back from it. So I think sometimes trauma can work like that. It's just like this little thing can happen and it can make everything else that has occurred be magnified. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, trauma is incredibly subjective. I was going to talk about, too, you know, I think some some things that I've been always curious about or that interest me about y'all's field is just the idea that, like you said, if both of us are in a car crash, one of us walks away just fine, the other one doesn't. The difference in, like, personalities and the way that trauma manifests in different people who experience the same event. Do you guys have anything to talk about with that? Yeah, I mean personal disclosure here, I'm an anxious person. Anxiety, I would say, is part of my personality. Um, and, and we have those personality traits of neuroticism, all that stuff. And so depending on who you are, like, again, personal disclosure, I think I respond to events with a bigger reaction sometimes just because of who I am. Um, and I, I think I was um, having this conversation earlier this week of like, when we get so used to thinking one way, that just becomes our automatic process of responding to something. And so we talk about those neural pathways. The more we think something, just the, the easier it is to do it. And I think that we, we learn those things in childhood too. That's why mm -hmm. childhood is such a big part of trauma development. That's so interesting that you bring that up about childhood being so important when you're considering trauma 
But for decades, what we hear even from experts is, oh, kids are so resilient. That phrase yeah. angers me so much. Yes, kids are absolutely resilient because their brains are growing. Mm-hmm. Um, they shouldn't have to be. They shouldn't have they should. to be. But the fact is, is that there is more room for neural development and neural repair. Um So yes, they're resilient. It doesn't mean that they are not going to have effects. Um, There was a study that came out in early 2000s, maybe, the ACES study, Mm, where several psychologists um, went about studying the effects of trauma on childhood and development, and they found that kids that have gone through horrible trauma or even just in neighborhoods, because trauma can be community. An entire community can experience long-term trauma together. Um, but even children that maybe they had great parents, but they were living in a violent neighborhood. They did um, all this stuff. It's on the CDC's website. But they found that their brains, the frontal lobes, were not as developed, mm-hmm. um, which means executive functioning, higher learning, decision making, all of that is affected if trauma is not addressed in, in vivo when it's happening. Um, so that's why I think childhood therapy, get, you know, if, if you can, if you have the resources, and I'm, my suggestion would be that we should offer the resources as much as we can, um, if you have the resources to manage it young um, so that you can have that neural repair. But it does. It damages your cells, like at the cellular level. Mm-hmm. Are you able, if you, like, let's say, like, you're talking about, like, developing brain pathways. That's something that's learned. Like, the body remembers and learns what you may not brain's kind of the same way is there a way to kind of rewire a pathway is that easier when they're a child versus when they're adult or is it possible at all it's definitely possible Mm -hmm. definitely possible i don't know if it if it's easier as a child or easier as an adult i think children have the capacity to be so creative and imaginative Mm -hmm. and that is really important with resiliency and, and learning to use new skills As adults, we have the ability to be insightful and um, reflect on past experiences and current experiences. So you have like a balance of both things. Um, Mm -hmm. You might have a a different thought on like the childhood process. No, I certainly certainly agree um, with what you said that that children – they don't have as many hang-ups. It's still hard for them to talk about their trauma, but usually they haven't had time to create a pattern to build a wall so that you can't get to it. That's, that's why I think we get this, you know, children are resilient, but it's because they haven't developed yet ways to lock that trauma away. Whereas you'll see that in more adults where we get to trauma and then they're totally closed off. They, they know it's there, but they don't want to deal with it because it's hard, and they've developed all of these patterns that keep it locked up, you know, avoidance or making jokes or whatever it is that kind of limits access. Do you ever find that when you're treating a child for trauma, you're seeing a child and working through trauma, that you can get progress done between the two of you as patient and clinician but what if the parents also don't know how to continue that work or even don't have the attitudes or experiences to understand, appreciate, and continue that work at home? Um, not in a 
purposeful, I'm going to deny my child good parenting, but in a, like a lack of understanding or, you know, so I guess what I'm asking is if a child comes to you and is working, doing trauma work with you, but at home is the same attitudes or the same conversations as always, what is the best case scenario? Do they, are, are they able to truly do good trauma work if nothing else in their environment changes or does it, I mean, obviously, if a parent is on board and participating, that I would think that's the best case scenario and the best uh, opportunity for that child. I'm just curious about, you know, parents who may not really understand the kind of trauma work that's going on or why it's necessary or how it affects the brain and, and how you're, you know, you're actually changing the brain. And um, so if they come to you and see Miss Emily or Miss Miriam, for an hour a week and then go home to the same old, same old. Mm -hmm. That's certainly a risk. Um, I don't know, Miriam, if you've had the experience of something similar to that. Um, I have run into that a few times. Most of the time what you said is, is true. If parents are bringing their child because something traumatic has happened, that's a trauma for the parent as well. And so we have the, the conversation, like there are 168 hours in the week mm -hmm. and I get them for one. So you're gonna have some work that you've gotta do at home and here's what that might look like. Mm -hmm. um, and I will occasionally kind of hold their feet to the fire. They're not getting better. How's it going at home? What are we doing? Um, in a nice way, obviously. Mm -hmm. Right, you're but. not insinuating that it's their fault, but maybe having a discussion of accountability or right. making a change in your treatment recommendations. Yes. No threats, just questions. Yeah, that's all. just curiosity. And a child that's gone through a trauma, if their parents act like something is different, they pick up on that, and that to them is sometimes more traumatic than the event. Mm -hmm. If mom and dad are afraid to talk to them or or whatever it is, but they parent differently and their foundation has shifted mm -hmm. or they don't give discipline the same way. Now, sometimes that's okay, depending on what's going on, but your child will then feel like, oh, this is happening now, I'm broken. So we have to have a conversation with parents like, okay, here's how we're going to parent a child that's gone through trauma. Um, you're their foundation. If you act like everything is horrible, then they're gonna pick up that everything is horrible yeah. so they need you your, your calm is the most powerful thing mm -hmm. so we have to have that educational piece as well okay that is great so what I'm hearing is that when you're working with children it really needs to be a collaborative process with the caregivers oh, absolutely. to get the most out of it so my next question is what about when you're working with adults do is, do, is it a similar do you aim for similar collaboration like with spouse or the most important people in that person's life or is it as important? I think it's it's definitely important if you are able to do that. If you're able to bring in the people in your support system to learn and grow with you, that's I think the ideal mm -hmm. situation. I would say at least for most of the people that I work with, that is not possible for everyone. Maybe it's because of broken relationships or um, it's geographically not possible. Um, those are all, I wouldn't even call them barriers, but it just makes it maybe a, a prolonged process where you have to kind of go through that yourself. But it's definitely a good thing if you can involve your support systems. And, and part of the therapeutic process, I think, is 
learning how to incorporate the people in your life um, in a positive way um, to heal relationships, to improve your interpersonal relationships. And yeah, it's definitely possible. Well said yeah. and encouraging too. And I was going to add, I was, gonna I, add, I was agreeing I, with I was everything you said. I was going to add too. Sometimes when I'm sometimes working, when with, I'm working kids, with kids, I will recommend, I will recommend or, ask or ask the question to parents, are you in counseling yourself? Counseling and if yes, you're not, yeah, not, you should consider you should that. Here are some recommendations. Because it's so beneficial when, when a child so is learning new things. If a parent can do the same thing, because it's probably a system problem, whatever is happening. So yeah, I always make that recommendation. Do you find that parents are often like open or willing to start counseling services? I I feel like mental illness has become, and like mental health overall, not even just mental illness, you can attend counseling without any concerns for mental illness itself, but just have things that you need to talk about or work through. I feel like that itself has become um, more of a conversation and more we've been more open about that kind of over the last couple of years. Do you guys feel like parents are more open to kind of attending that work? I think so. I'm certainly seeing a trend yeah. of people being more open. Um, I have insisted, I mean, obviously I can't, people to do something they don't want to do but I have pretty much insisted um, if there is a system issue mm -hmm. like you said everybody needs to be in therapy <laughs> you know in order for this to work I can work with your child I can do all the things but if everybody's not trying to deal with this whatever is going on it's it'll be helpful you know it's not a waste of time but it's not going to be as helpful as it could be but you guys know me. I'm like, therapy for you, therapy for you, therapy for everybody. My entire family's in therapy, every single one of us, all five of us. I'd highly recommend it to pretty much everybody. I'm like, yeah. go for one to five yeah. sessions, like yeah. minimum. Just get yourself checked out, you know? It should be kind of the same thing as going to the doctor for a physical checkup. Mm -hmm. It's like, you need to also make sure your brain is kind of like, for lack of a better term, up to date. Yeah. <laughs> And running the way it needs to be running. A hundred percent. The brain is an organ. It is going to have issues, illnesses, just like any other organ. You know, we don't scoff at like heart disease. Yeah. We don't scoff at lung disease or diabetes or anything like that. We don't see any of those things as weakness. I'll disclose, like I do see a counselor. I've been seeing a counselor for oh, several years now and I love her. She's great. Um, and I think we've had the conversation before where I, I feel like as a speech therapist, I can somewhat relate to counseling because the difference between us and someone who's a physical therapist or an occupational therapist is that they can watch themselves improving in movement. They can see that. They cannot see their own brain and they can't like see, it's not always very obvious when they're making progress or how they're making progress or how quickly because it's not seen. And that I think is something that's more insidious about the mental health field is that the fact that people kind of discount it because there's nothing visual that they get from it. Um, and they kind of conceptualize it differently, I think because of that. That can also be added into the therapeutic process is to say, okay, let's look at progress. Let's see, you know, because if you're walking on a long flat road, it feels like you've been walking forever and it doesn't feel like you've done anything, you know? So I will do that a lot with kids 
where I was like, hey, remember last year when um, you first started seeing me and we were talking about separation anxiety and now you're going to spend the night at grandma's every weekend. And they may not recall that. Yeah. And they're like, oh yeah, like this is still hard, but I'm totally doing better. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes checking in is a good part of it. Um, but I think from the outside, sometimes it's like, well, we've been going to therapy for two years and I still have anxiety. Yes, but how are you managing it? Mm-hmm. You know, is it as debilitating? I think to speak to what you said, Megan, about the progress is not as easily observed or noticed um, when you're dealing with the mental facilities, mental faculties, what's the word? Faculties mental health. Sure. The um, mental stuff. Just, a, just throw in a little teaser for a future episode where we will discuss how you can know more about those private events and processes that aren't easily seen because it's inside the mind when we discuss psychological testing and evaluations coming up. How useful Ah. that information is to see the unseen on paper. Um, And I also did just want to bring up or ask maybe, I know I'm a behavior analyst, so I'm not a counselor. I do see parents from time to time where we're discussing um, behavior and there's definitely an element of trauma. So behavior analysis focuses on observable and measurable behavior. So my field is definitely not what's happening in the mind or why it's happening, but there is a much more emphasis now in behavior analysis about being trauma-informed because it does influence behavior. So if we're going to help we can still be observable, measurable, minded, but we also have to have a working knowledge of these private events that may be influencing behavior. So I know when I've suggested to parents, maybe looking into counseling for their child or for themselves also, specifically if it's a big T trauma that has affected the whole family, um, or even sometimes it's just the stress and trauma of raising a child with needs, exceptional needs. And I will, you know, recommend it would be good for you to see a counselor, just check in with one. And just to let you in on the barriers that I hear back is time, cost, Mm -hmm. insurance coverage, um, wait lists for, and then also uh, finding a counselor that has a good background knowledge in the issue that you're trying to get help with or is a good fit or um, what what would you tell people if any of those barriers or concerns like time and cost for sure Mm -hmm. Um, but then also curiosity about well who do I look for to help do you have any recommendations or guidelines or tips or tricks to share I mean my first response is validation just like yeah, it's hard to find a therapist who mm-hmm. fits your budget, who can see you during the times when you can be seen. Those are all very real barriers. They are. So Absolutely. kind of validating that can be helpful. Like, okay, it's not just you. This is something that most people run into. Um, I think this is why, like, networking is so important. I mean, we are lucky here at Silver Linings that, like, I know all of the therapists here Mm -hmm. and I would recommend them to anyone and I trust them. It's good that we have that that connection here. 
but when I give recommendations to clients, I always give recommendations to people that I know personally or that I have, you know, had experience with. Um, It's someone that, like, I trust. And so I always let my clients know that, you know, I'm giving you this recommendation because I trust them because I think they're a good fit. Um, But I also recommend going into therapy, like your first appointment, telling your therapist exactly what your goals are, Mm -hmm. some parts about your personality, asking questions, because the intake, the therapist is asking you a bunch of questions, Mm -hmm. but you should also be asking questions about what is your approach? Um, What do you ask this potential therapist in an intake? Okay. Um, That's a great question. Um, I think, I don't (laughs) know. I don't know. I'm trying to think like what the questions that I've been yeah. asked and some of them are really condescending. Like, what yeah. is your training? Mm-hmm. Where did you go to school? And I'm, I'm going to be like, that's irrelevant. But, <laughs> um, but I, but I do think that it's good to say, well, I really need X. Yeah. Is that something you can speak to or, you know, what methods do you use mm-hmm. or, um, things like that? Is there a particular, um, theological approach yeah Yeah. so an area you specialize in might be another good one yeah um those are all great questions i'm trying to think yeah of things that i have been asked and things that i have asked my therapists Mm -hmm. in the past um i think that might be all of them and the intake's always really hard anyway because we have to ask questions that are just dredging up yes every every little thing and it is so uncomfortable. And, you know, for me, because um, I cha- ended up changing therapists mm-hmm. um, a few years in, I was like, you know, I've grown and I think I've gone as far as I can with this approach and I'm going to look at something else. Yeah. Um, and I, what I really wanted to do was, like, give her a PowerPoint of all of my trauma. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, let me like, catch you up. Let me just get you to where I'm at. I would think that would be helpful. I mean, yeah. as a counselor, I would say this this is great. Yeah. I would 100% do that. <laughs> yeah. I would make a PowerPoint. It'd have transitions between the slides, yes, for exactly. sure. Make it enjoyable for them to read. Absolutely. Ages. Like, what is your ACE, that ACEs study? My adverse childhood experience was X. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It would be so, Here's a dissertation be so on my trauma. Yes. <laughs> do your magic. Then you don't have to dredge it up and then send your client, your new client out, yeah. having talked about all of this tough stuff. Who you don't know. Right. You're not You've familiar with them, them yet. I like, let to... me tell this stranger. Yeah. Let me talk about the worst experiences they've ever had. Yes. And then see you later. Yeah. See you but, next week. Maybe. But from Maybe. the clinician's standpoint... I got to know what right. we're yep. working with because no, there's yeah. nothing worse that work than working for a kid or a person for like a year, two years. And they're like, Oh, by the way, yeah, this happened. And you're like, like I could have been <laughs> dealing with that this whole time. Just or, keeping a straight face. And you're like, mm-hmm. Okay. Mm, all right. right. And I always preference preface, um, at the intake, like if something is not working for you or if you want to work on something different, if you want to change your goals, please don't hesitate to tell me, I'm a people pleaser, so I do not do that naturally. So mm-hmm. I just go ahead and put it out there like, listen, we got to collaborate, and I'm mm-hmm. happy to make changes. Um, and what you said, Megan, of like shopping around for a therapist and mm-hmm. being okay with, you know, breaking up with a therapist, that is that is okay, too. Okay. My what is the, what's the, best, what's way the best way to, to break, break up, up with your therapist? <laughs> your therapist. Because, <laughs> because I can just, I can through, the through the microphone, through the 
internet, I can just hear our listeners cringing at the thought of having to break up with their therapist. Well, there are a number of ways. I mean, obviously, if you just have one intake appointment, you can just ghost them. Yes. That's in general what happens. Yes. They just drop off a bouquet of flowers, a roll of cash. <laughs> a gift card I mean, to Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks. <laughs> yeah. and a, a, a very affirming, it's not you, it's not A me. calligraphy a letter of... Well, I'll tell parents in the intake, hey, listen, I'm not for everybody. And that's okay. Um, I've got a long, um, list, got of a long list of people that, that I really that trust. I really trust and and I don't even need you. <laughs> I'm just I don't say that. I'm joking. I'm joking. But yeah, reality is, if it doesn't fit... No, because it's yeah. essentially a waste of both of our time. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, I'm all about like just the logic of like, if this doesn't work, it's okay. It don't hurt my feelings. Not as a counselor, but Not having counselor, definitely been broken up with by clients, I would say my favorite experiences are just the ones where they like contact me and then I contact them and then they contact me back. Because usually they'll send me the breakup letter, email, phone, like voicemail, whatever. And then I'm like, oh, I'm like, I'm sorry to hear that. If you need me help, find somebody else. Like, I just want to give them resources because if it's not me, I still want it to be somebody. And so I want to reach back out and be like, hey. And sometimes I've known these people for two or three years and their family. And I'm like, best of luck. And then I don't hear anything. And I'm like, oh, I understand. But come on now. Give me something so I know we're good. I mean, that always hits your ego. Yeah. I mean, it's not ever yeah, fun for somebody good. to ghost you. I mean, that you. always hits um, your ego. And I, yeah. I mean, it's not ever fun as a to ghost you. Yeah. Um, recovering not, people pleaser. I'm always like, as I did a, something wrong. It's me. Yeah. Um, but, I like, but I think the longer I've done this, but I think the longer I've done this, sometimes it just like, doesn't work. I feel the need to make the other person, the person that's breaking up with me, feel the need to make to them make comfortable the person that's doing it. Like, I want to be professional and objective and say, this like was a business relationship, and if it's not working for whatever reason, you know, if I if I did something, if I can make it right, that's one thing, and of course I'll offer to do that, but if it's, you know, we can't make the schedule, or we didn't get the job we were hoping, we can't afford to continue services, or we're going to take a break because we're so overloaded, I feel like I want to make them feel okay and not dread how I'm going to receive that news and I say much like you I completely understand condolences where necessary or encouragement where necessary and I'm here as long as you know there was no adverse problem in our relationship I'm here if you need me you have my contact information in our relationship I'm here if you need me they're super smart and they're great and they'll do they'll do wonderful and like that's I feel like kind of yeah. Your I mean, therapist your corner, is a, your therapist does not hate you for canceling yeah. services. Your therapist doesn't. You know. That is not. They're not angry. They're not upset. Like no. it's none of that. It's it's, it's part of the biz. It is part of the business. And in general, you know, like I said, if I'm not for you, I will help you find somebody who is. Like I said, if I'm not, if my schedule doesn't accommodate your schedule, or I don't take your insurance or whatever else, schedule doesn't accommodate your schedule, or get the help that you need. If you feel like you're finished with kids, sometimes that'll happen. Parents will be like, "Well, I feel like you're finished." Fine. With kids, sometimes that'll happen. Well, I think they're if you ever fine. Need me again? Like, okay. Let me know. Um, you know, and I'll if you and I'll be here or I'll help you find me again. Something. I'm assuming that's kind of the same for adults as 
think I'm good. Well, I'm, I'm, you have my contact information. Reach out to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. My therapist graduated me for meeting my goals, but in our last sessions told me if I ever needed a tune-up mm. yeah, to call her to and come up. back. Or she also said, you know, if, if anything happens that you need help processing, mm-hmm. always come back. Or if you just feel like you need a tune-up. And that felt wonderful to know that even though... Uh, which she did the total ethical and professional thing. I met my goals. Our relationship could end. She could make room for someone else, even though I loved going to have an hour to talk to somebody who understood what was happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did appreciate that she let me go gently with that open door of, I'm still your therapist. If you are in need of a therapist, mm-hmm. I'll make room. And I would say that's, For most of the cases that I've had, and I'm sure you guys can speak to this, for most of the cases where someone does need to move on, it is an open door. It is like, hey, if you need me, I've even, you know, if I'm recommending someone go elsewhere, especially for, like, distance reasons, I go, please let me know if you find one of these places, and if you don't, I want to help you find somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And it's still an open door policy where if they end up still coming to me, that's not a problem. I just want to make sure that we find somewhere that's the best fit for them. And they want to make sure your therapist is looking to give you more help and more support and more resources, regardless of if you're being seen at the moment. I'm sure there are some cases where that's not appropriate, but I would say the majority, that's kind of what's, what's going on. Um, but I, I do want to say we should probably kind of close up here. So, Well, wait. Okay, yes, ma'am. Last Last question for those of you in the hot seat. You've had an intake. You've made this poor stranger spill their deepest, darkest secrets of trauma in your office. And they've decided not to fire you, to stick with you. How do you present the the way you're going to help them work through this trauma? Do you describe whatever specific techniques that you use and give them a heads up? Do you start with making goals and then decide on an approach? Can you share shed a little light? I think it depends on what the goals are. But we always, you want to always end, at least from the counseling standpoint, um, with person-centered goals. Mm-hmm. What are they there for to achieve? You know, whether that's emotional regulation. With trauma, it's, it's generally um, an overall functioning and having emotional regulation. Um, because their nervous system is so fired up from the trauma. So we would go with, at least for me, I would um, go with goals and then say, okay, we can go about this several different ways. Um, We can do something called EMDR. We can do talk therapy. We can do play therapy. Um, It depends on your child or it depends on you, what you would prefer, what you're most comfortable with. Or we could do a integrative approach where we might talk one session and then we might do some body system work in the next session. So it just depends mm-hmm. um, with what their what their goals are. Goal setting, I make a collaborative process. I'll usually ask the question, what do you want to accomplish mm-hmm. in counseling? Um, I also do try and explain like, you know, the first three about three sessions we spend a lot of time learning and getting to know about you and um, we can adjust our goals during that time and then once we build some insight we'll start really the hard work Mm -hmm. so I prepare them for somewhat of a timeline and I think for children especially um, make it a 
I try to make it a point to do an informed consent and confidentiality and goal setting with them because they may have very different yeah. goals than what their parents have. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, they're the one I'm working with. They're my client. So um, I think that matters, too. And it matters to them to know that they're autonomous, yeah. that they can make some of those decisions because sometimes the ability to feel safe is all I can offer at first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like you have an hour in this fun room with a safe adult. And super sad that that's where it has to start sometimes. Sometimes. With just basic safety. Yeah. All right, ladies, that was fantastic answer to that question. I appreciated both of your perspectives. Megan, hmm. I won't stand in your way of closing <laughs> out this episode. You're fine. I just wanted to ask for any any final thoughts that you guys have that you would kind of use to summarize, wrap up, or just kind of sending people forward into their days after listening to us talk about this topic. I'd like to send the message of don't be afraid to seek help um, because it can be a very scary experience. Yes, and I like the analogy of the only way out is through. If you're suffering, the only way out of the suffering is just to work through it. We can't go around it or under it, and we can't hide it. Mm-hmm. So go through it, mm-hmm. and you'll feel better. Well, I hope it makes people hopeful to know now that there are people like you ladies that are not only willing and delighted to help, but have the training and education, knowledge, and experience to do it effectively. And my, my final note is very similar to the message that um, we gave at the end of the last episode, which was that learn more about other people and the way that other people work and treat them with kindness when you're not sure. I think knowledge is one of the most important tools that we can have. And if, if you're willing to regard someone with judgment, maybe start with offering grace. Yes. Let's Mm -hmm. make kindness the default. Let's, let's try to make kindness the default and understanding because while we do all experience big T, little T, whatever we experience, Mm -hmm. give people the space and the time and the kindness of letting them speak for themselves, communicate for themselves, and just heal. Um, I think that's one of the biggest gifts that anyone can give. Agreed. And on that note. On that note, later Gators, we'll (laughs) see you at our next episode.